Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're featuring one of our personal favorite podcasts, The Past and the Curious. This episode combines science and engineering with history. It's all about bridges. And we think you're really going to enjoy it. Stay tuned while we hand the show over to our friend Mick from The Past and the Curious. Hello, Tumble listeners. My name is Mick Sullivan, and I'm the host and creator of The Past and the Curious. This is a podcast for kids and families that's all about history and people from the past and the amazing and interesting things that they have done. Through the Kids Listen organization, we have gotten to know Lindsay and Marshall very well over the last couple years and are completely in love with what they're doing with Tumble. In fact, Tumble was one of the biggest inspirations for my show when I was creating it uh, about two and a half years ago. So when Lindsay asked if we would help them by giving them a special episode of The Past and the Curious, we jumped at the chance. Of course, we're super excited to be able to help them as they are welcoming their new baby into the world, which is something I did about five months ago, so I totally know what it's like. But this show has been a huge inspiration to me, and so it really felt great. Thank you, Lindsay and Marshall, and congratulations. This episode is about two really great people from history. There's music, there's engineering, there's science, there's women's history, there's uh, the Harlem Renaissance. I can't wait to share it with you. This is The Past and the Curious. Hopefully this never happens to you, but if you find yourself hard at work building a world-changing bridge and you just so happen to get your foot smushed... Ah, my foot! It's smushed! When an arriving ferry boat pins it against a dock... Ugh, please take our advice and listen to the doctor. This happened to a man named John Roebling, and he didn't listen to the doctor. He actually refused medical treatment, saying he didn't need anything other than to have some water poured over that smushed foot. He got tetanus and he died. He should have taken our advice. But the thing is, John was in charge of designing and overseeing construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, which was possibly the most ambitious creation ever attempted in American history at that point. And the Brooklyn Bridge was to be the first steel wire suspension bridge in the world. And many people doubted it would actually be a success. They had even greater reason to doubt it after the chief engineer died from a smushed foot just a few months after construction began. And it would take another 14 years to build the bridge. Following John's death, the responsibility of making the job was done fell upon his son, Washington Roebling. Quick note. This is the same Washington Roebling who wrote a letter about seeing Abe Lincoln's underwear, which we featured in episode 10 of The Past and the Curious. Well, Washington was a smart man and just as capable as his father in many ways, but he was almost as unlucky. If you've ever seen the bridge, it is suspended from two beautiful towers that look like they could have been from a medieval German castle, and those towers go deep into the bottom of the river. The problem with the riverbed in this location was that there was no solid rock on which to anchor these towers. Instead, under the water, there was just millions of years worth of compacted mud and loose stone at the bottom. The crew of builders would need to dig deep into the mud in order to anchor these stone towers. If they were not securely anchored, well, they'd fall over. And that's just not what you want out of a bridge. But 
how do you dig a hole and get a giant concrete anchor deeper and deeper into the bottom of a riverbed? It's a river. There's water all over, no oxygen to breathe. Well, the solution is to build something called a caisson. Have you ever taken a bowl or a cup and pushed it underwater, upside down? What happens? The air inside the cup has nowhere to go, and that prevents it from filling up with water, right? It stays dry inside. Now, imagine a giant wood, steel, and concrete bowl pushed upside down into a river until it has settled at the bottom. Now, imagine that there's a long tube from the surface to that bowl with a ladder inside. This is how workers would get down into the caisson, a giant concrete bowl at the bottom of the river. Once they were there, it was their job to dig out mud and send it through machines back out to the top. As they did this every single day, mud scoop by mud scoop, the caisson would slowly burrow further and further down into the riverbed. Days and hours of hard labor were measured in inches. It took months to go deep enough to make the anchor secure enough to build the tower upon it. I bet there's one question lingering on your mind. What about air? How did the workers breathe? Well, the deeper you go underwater, the greater the pressure is. Water is heavy, and it wants to squeeze all the air out and up to the surface. So to combat this, the caissons were built to be really strong, and they were pressurized with oxygen pumped from the surface. It was uncomfortable, temperatures were extreme, and it was dark and damp. Not really a great work environment. But one of the biggest problems was a thing called the bends. Deep sea divers have dealt with this too. Basically, if very quickly you go from a place deep, where the pressure is extreme, to the surface, where the pressure is more normal, your body can't adjust quickly enough, and some weird things happen. It's called the bends, caisson disease, or decompression sickness. And we won't go into what happens, but, and it's not going to happen at the swimming pool. We're talking about really deep. But it is very, very painful. And in the case of Washington Roebling, the effects can be permanent. While investigating a problem in one of the two caissons, Washington came up fast and was struck by a particularly bad case of the bends. He almost didn't live. Instead, he suffered bouts of pain, partial deafness, partial blindness, and a condition so weak that he could barely get out of bed. Sometimes he couldn't at all. This was the 1880s, and leadership opportunities were not typically offered to women. This doesn't mean that a woman wasn't capable of managing and directing the creation of an incredible work of engineering like the Brooklyn Bridge. It's just that she probably would have never been given the opportunity for the training and never would have been given the chance to do the job beyond that. But every so often, a situation could occur that would put a woman in the unofficial position of proving her abilities. It was well known to anyone who knew her that Washington's wife, Emily Warren Roebling, could do just about anything. And with her husband confined to bed, their family's reputation at risk, and all of the blood, sweat, and tears they had given, Emily threw all of her abilities into the Brooklyn Bridge. It was touch and go at first. The powers behind paying for the bridge wanted to remove Washington from the position. He was confined to bed, on the edge of death, many believed. But Emily was able to garner support from many, 
convincing them that John could watch from a window nearby and that the plans were firmly and picture-perfectly sorted out in his head. She would be able to work with him, deliver orders, and report happenings to him and act as his assistant. And for a while, that's exactly how it went. But the project took years. And when a smart person does something every day for a long time, they're going to get really good at it. Before long, Emily was meeting with the many engineers, making face-to-face -face decisions, problem-solving, and acting as project manager. For a while, she had to keep up appearances that she was taking orders from her bedridden husband as he watched from the window. But before long, she was accepted as an equal in the circle of engineers working on the structure. With him struggling and bedridden with pain and temporary blindness as a result of the bends, many suspected she was actually the acting field engineer, doing the job fully, and many believed her more than capable enough to do so. Finally, on May 24th, 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge was to be officially opened. Many people doubted its strength and were scared of a suspension bridge of its length. Showman P.T. Barnum volunteered to prove its safety by promenading 21 of his elephants across the span. He was kindly thanks but no thanks, though one year later, he led his pachyderms across anyway. It was to be another animal that would make the first trek across the bridge. For good luck, a rooster was carried in the arms of none other than Emily Roebling the first person to officially cross the Brooklyn Bridge. And when she did, she tucked that rooster under her arm and reached out to shake hands with another early crosser, President Chester A. Arthur. It would not have been possible without her, and thousands watched from both shores and from boats below. She was the guest of the day, and her husband, Washington, was unable to even leave their home. Throughout the day, it is estimated that 250,000 people crossed the spectacular bridge. At the dedication ceremony, she was honored in these words of Abram Hewitt. The name Emily Warren Roebling will be inseparably associated with all that is admirable in human nature and all that is wonderful in the constructive world of art. He called the bridge an everlasting monument to the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman and her capacity for that higher education from which she has been too long disbarred. After the bridge, Emily didn't slow down, becoming one of the first women to graduate from law school at New York University. And she wrote regularly on the equality of men and women. Recalling her time on the bridge in a letter to her son in 1898, she said the following. I have more brains, common sense, and know-how generally than have any two engineers, civil or uncivil. And but for me, the Brooklyn Bridge would never have had the name Roebling in any way connected with it. I wonder where my pizza is. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Oh, welcome quiz to quiz time. time. It's bridge it's quizzes, quiz so we're just going to bungee jump right into it. Question number one. Where on earth is the oldest bridge that is still usable? 
Well, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, it's in Turkey, you bunch of turkeys. The bridge is a single arch bridge made of stone in Izmir, Turkey, and it is believed to have been built in 850 BC. How's that for engineering? Question number two. Natural Bridge in Virginia is an incredible sight of Mother Nature creating a giant formation through erosion that is essentially a 90-foot-high stone bridge. Can you tell me what former president owned the land that it sits on today? Now, George Washington is rumored to have thrown a stone clear over the giant archway, but he was just a surveyor in that tale. Thomas Jefferson bought the land in 1774, and he built a two-room cabin nearby, which welcomed some pretty famous visitors. Question number three. Bridges are a great way to honor someone for their place in history. Which of the following people does not have a bridge named after them? Duke Ellington, Mark Twain, Betsy Ross, or Louis Armstrong? The Duke Ellington Bridge is in his home of Washington, D.C. And the Mark Twain Bridge, actually bridges, are in Hannibal, Missouri. The Betsy Ross Bridge is in her home of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Louis Armstrong does not have a bridge named in his honor. The man from our next story, also a jazz musician, does not have a bridge named after him either. But there is a movement to rename New York's Williamsburg Bridge in his honor. Listen to find out why. And for the record, we support changing the name in honor of that man. Do you remember what an eponym is? It's been discussed on The Past and the Curious before. An eponym is a word that is named after a particular person. We've mentioned the acrobat Jules Leotard and his famous costume, and we've mentioned that the word mesmerize comes from a hypnotist named Franz Mesmer. There are hundreds of others. The Dahlia flower is named after botanist Anders Dahl, and the word boycott comes from the actions of a man named Charles, you guessed it, boycott. It may come as a surprise to learn that the word saxophone is an eponym, too. When Adolf Sachs filed the patent for his winding, wormy woodwind in 1846, he probably had no idea what people would be doing with it a century later. The first classical composer to really welcome the instrument was the French romantic composer Hector Berlioz. But for the most part, the saxophone was used for military music, mostly because they are loud, and that's the way Adolf Sachs made them. But in the next century, the saxophone, which was never fully adopted into classical music, became one of the primary instruments of an American music movement, led by African Americans, sprouting from New Orleans and heading into Memphis, Chicago, and New York. It's no wonder Sonny Rollins was drawn to music. He grew up in the Sugar Hill neighborhood of Harlem in the 1930s, at the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance. Duke Ellington lived on his block, Charlie Bird Parker played the clubs in the neighborhood, and would give the kids like Sonny pointers. Coleman Hawkins lived around the corner, once in an effort to erase racial tensions and demonstrate an example of positive, peaceful coexistence between the different cultures and ethnicities sharing the limited space of the neighborhood, Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole gave a concert together at Sonny's school. Music was everywhere, and so were the ideas of African Americans creating a wealth of incredible art. 
Sonny, though, didn't expect to be a musician at first. He never had much formal training, and besides, his first passion was the pen. He wanted to be a cartoonist, and even in high school, he thought that might be the direction his life would lead. But he was a really good saxophone player. Originally, he put the heavier reed from a tenor saxophone in his higher-pitched alto saxophone in an effort to sound more like his idol, Coleman Hawkins. But soon he found a tenor and would sit in his room with a record player, moving the needle back and forth and listening over and over to the phrases and melodies his heroes played. Painstakingly working to learn how to play them himself. No one sounds good when they are learning, and Sonny's near-constant sound must have just seemed like noise, as it was surely heard by the other people in the densely packed neighborhood, not to mention by his own family. Still, minutes of practice became hours, hours became days, and days eventually became years, with a saxophone in his hand. Amazingly, just a few years later, as a man in his 20s, Sonny Rollins found his name alongside some of the biggest and brightest stars in jazz. But it wasn't exactly how Sonny expected. Despite getting calls to play with some of the best, he didn't feel great with his abilities. He was always honest with himself, and he knew he needed to learn and develop, but he wasn't honest enough to ask for help. He had to play it cool. It was difficult because I had to keep a posture of being good enough to be there, so I didn't want to kind of say, well, man, how do you do that, you know? So I tried to learn without asking, so to speak. Fake it till you make it, people say nowadays. For a few years, Sonny was a huge deal, and in the late 1950s, jazz was big. It was, and is, one of America's most unique art forms, one that blends African and Caribbean rhythms and the call and response from songs of the former enslaved of America, with popular songs by mostly Jewish Tin Pin Alley songwriters and the harmony of the world's most intelligent classical composers. And what is more, it was largely improvised. It was made up, on the spot. In performance, a song would be played through once, and then musicians would interact and improvise, creating something new and spontaneous over the framework, right on the spot. People flocked to the clubs in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles to hear people like Sonny, alongside his contemporaries, and oftentimes bandmates like Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, and others. The jazz writers and magazine polls started to zero in on Sonny. Was he the best young sax player on the scene? By 1959, many said yes. That's not what Sonny felt. Every place I went, it was Sonny Rollins, he's the cat to see, which was good, but I didn't really have the feeling within myself that I was really able to put out what they expected from me. And I felt like this was because I didn't really have all of my stuff together. And this was beginning to take me out. I was really upset about it, you know? He struggled with it for a while and then confronted himself. He could keep living an unhealthy life where people told him he was great, even though he knew he wasn't doing all he could do, or he could begin to actually be great in his own eyes. He chose the latter, left it all on the table. It was more valuable to feel good about himself than look himself in the mirror after giving an audience a performance he was not happy with. One morning, after struggling with the decision, he took a walk. In his hands, he had his saxophone and probably a little something to eat. His feet carried him to the Williamsburg Bridge over the East River in New York. A breeze blew, boats chugged below, cars zoomed by, and the occasional passerby walked across. But for the most part, he was in solitude. Sonny pulled out his horn and started to blow. He stayed all day. And he came back the next day, and the day after that, it didn't matter what time it was. Morning, night, it didn't matter what the temperature was. Hot, cold, 
It didn't matter how he felt. He went to the bridge and he blew his horn. Alone above the river, free from the eyes and expectations of an audience, and with hours of time to challenge himself, Sonny bothered not with playing the things he had already mastered. What's the point of that? Instead, he practiced the things that were difficult, the things that he heard in his head but could not technically master, and he learned to play big and loud. Playing to the sky and the clouds and above the noise of New York was a beautiful thing in his eyes. For two years, this was his life. He was not on the scene. He was on the bridge. Besides a new command of his instrument, Sonny took a new command of his body, using this time to quit smoking, start practicing yoga and lifting weights, and commit to a healthy diet. In 1961, when he decided his time on the bridge was over, the press said he had come back out of retirement, but Sonny never thought he retired. He was getting himself together. Healthy, centered, and satisfied with his music, he once again became one of the most celebrated saxophonists in the country. Most importantly, he was happy. For the next 40 years, Sonny pushed the boundaries of his music and inspired generations of musicians. His playing always being intelligent, melodic, powerful, and often filled with humor and joy. Though he slowed down at the age of 87, he still lives by the principles he dedicated himself to on that bridge in 1959. Take note, he's the first person to be featured on The Past and the Curious who is still alive. But since he is such a part of music history, and because April is Jazz Appreciation Month, and because we're enormous fans who want to share his story, we couldn't help ourselves. It's time for a new bit. It's Dr. Awkward, the palindrome professor. It's Dr. Awkward, the palindrome professor. It's Dr. Awkward. It's Dr. Awkward. Palindrome. Okay, I'd like to welcome everyone to a new segment with our guest commentator, Dr. Awkward. Dr. Awkward is a professor of history, and we'll be checking in with him occasionally for some guest commentary on the stories and people of the past that we cover. Um, one word of warning, though, Dr. Awkward insists on speaking entirely in palindromes. Um, if you're not sure what that means, everything that he says is spelled the exact same way backwards as it is forwards. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, with that, Welcome to Dr. Awkward. Welcome to The Past and the Curious. It's an honor to have you. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we really roll out the red carpet around here. Like, literally, yeah, watch your, watch your step. Uh, I, I guess maybe that carpet is a bit too much, but you can see that we're very excited to have you. Borrow or rob? Borrow or the, the carpet? I just rented it. I didn't steal it. Who am I going to borrow a red carpet? Hey, Let's talk about history. Uh, I want to ask you about one of my favorite stories from the past, the time George Washington crossed the Delaware River in secret with all of his troops on Christmas Eve. He did, eh? Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. I thought you would have known about that. Uh, you know, remember, it was like it was freezing cold, and they loaded a few boats down with men and cannons and, like, even horses, and it, it really seemed dangerous. They uh, uh, I often think about what, what might have been going on in his head. Are we not drawn onward, we few drawn onward to a new era? Whoa, whoa, that's awesome. I bet you're right. The cusp of a new era. Oh, man. Uh, 
I'm wondering how you would have done it if you were in his shoes. Race car. Race car? George Washington didn't have a race car. And besides... A Toyota. Race fast, safe car. A Toyota. It seems like you would know that there weren't cars or bridges or even gas engines at this time. Listen, hey, by the way, what's your first name? Bob. Can I call you Bob? Dr. Awkward. Oh, all right. Dr. Awkward. Tell me. Obviously, George Washington was a man in need of a bridge. How would you cross that river if it was you? Kayak? You'd take horses over the river? An icy river? And a kayak? Okay. Well, uh, would you have done it at night, as George Washington did? Want a tan? Nah. <laughs> so you would you would do it at night so as not to get a tan? Uh, I see. No, I tan at a nation. I, I think we can just stop here. I can I can see where this is going. Um, do you have anything I, uh, to say before I turn off your microphone? Don't nod. My head? Oh, I assure you, I am not nodding. I am shaking my head in confusion and exasperation. Uh, thanks for being here. I'm gonna go ahead and let's let's go ahead and go home. Too bad I hid a boot. Well, I'm not gonna help you find it. Um, you're just gonna have to go home with one shoe on and one shoe off. I'm sorry. Uh, I bid you good day. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow, indeed. That's Doctor Awkward, the palindrome professor. It's Doctor Awkward. It's Doctor Awkward. Thanks again, Team Tumble. Congratulations on the new baby. And thank you to the listeners out there for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan. My show is called The Past and the Curious. And I hope you'll consider finding us somewhere on the interwebs. Best to you and yours. <laughs>